for me, when I think of the prodigal son, that's what I think about. I think about the, the, the triumphant return, not the living in the pigsty. Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com. Today, our special guest is Brandon McGinley. Brandon is a Catholic writer, a speaker based out of Pittsburgh. He's worked in politics for several years, including the pro-life and pro-family advocacy with the Pennsylvania Family Institute. Most recently, he was an editor of EWTN Publishing, easy for me to say. And his work has appeared in the Washington Post, First Things, Catholic Herald, uh, The Lamp, among other venues. So, Brandon, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Deacon. Well, I, you know, I saw the title of your book, and that's what we're going to be speaking of today, called The Prodigal Church, which is a very interesting title. Uh, definitely draws you in to think, what is this? I want to find out what he's talking about. Uh, what What made you write the book, and then what made you, you know, why did you come up with that title? Sure, sure. Yeah, you know, I had, um, you know, in, in, my, in my columns and other articles I was writing, I noticed a kind of theme that I just come in, kept coming back to, which was how the church, both in the sense of the institutional church, but in the, also in the sense of Catholic families, Catholic friendships, Catholic communities, how we can um, kind of actualize the very best of, of, of what the church can be by remembering and bringing to reality what the church is, by focusing on grace, by um, by embracing what it means to be um, the, the body of Christ on earth. And so that um, that was kind of the seed of the of the, the book project then was you know trying to give people despite and we'll talk about the title in a second. Yeah. Trying to give people a um, a hopeful vision of uh, of what is possible. I think so often our, our, our imaginations are constrained by, oh, well, wouldn't that be nice? But it's not possible. It's just not possible with this veil of tears. But I want to give people, and there are times in the book where maybe even the vision is a bit extravagant, but with grace, truly, the kind of things, uh, uh, the kind of friendships, the kind of communities, the kind of families, the kind of parishes and dioceses that seem, oh, extravagant or fanciful right now, it truly is possible, and I want people to, to come away from that. Well, think, well, yeah, in this day and time, you need hope, that's for sure. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, and then, of course, the title, though, is The Prodigal Church, and the word prodigal is itself quite a negative word. It has to do with, with wastefulness and, uh, and kind of the dissipation of a uh, of, uh, of legacy. Um, and that word dissipation comes from the um, the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son is said to live the life of dissipation. Um, but when I when we when we gave the book that title, we weren't just thinking of the negative aspect of prodigality. We were thinking of the the, the parable as a whole, especially especially the reconciliation and restoration of the relationship at the end of the parable. For me, when I think of the prodigal son, that's what I think about. I think about the, the, the triumphant return, not the living in the pigsty or whatever. <laughs> and so for me, and, and the idea is it's supposed to capture the, the, the parable as a whole. And so, yes, there's that dissipation. I talk about that in the book, how I feel like, you know, when you think of dissipation, the image I always think of is, a, you know, a sandcastle that gets washed over by the tide. And, 
the thing with dissipation is that unless something is broken, something is dissipated can't be put back together. It has become one with the world around it. It has lost all of its integrity. The beautiful thing is that, and this is why I love that they use that word dissipation in in the uh, the, the Latin Vulgate um, for, um, for, uh, for for the parable, um, is that through grace, God can do what is for us impossible. He can take something that's dissipated, something that's integrity has seemingly been lost for, for good, and bring it back again. The son, the prodigal son, lived a life of dissipation, but the moment he comes back, he's welcomed back with open arms and the relationship, and the, in, in a sense, the kind of... Um, the kind of legacy or inheritance that he had, even if even if the money hasn't come back, the relationship that is really the foundation of the thing is restored immediately. And so, for me, that's the you know there, there's parts of the book that are more about the past and how we got here, but this is not a cranky and backward-looking book. It's a hopeful and forward-looking book about how we can um, about hope for that kind of restoration, that kind of reconciliation, if only the church not just institutionally, but in all of us, comes back to the Father. Yeah, I, I really like the way the book was laid out, and you're, you're right. I mean, you do go into the history, kind of how we got to where we are, but, you know, you give hope when you're talking about the saints, you're talking about grace, you're talking about all these things that are available to us to make what what the vision you're talking about reality. The question yeah. is, are we going to take it? Are we going to take, you know, use the gifts that we've been given to do that? But you know, I really liked in the beginning of the book because you talk about Pope Benedict XVI and his prediction of a smaller church. You talk about Archbishop Fulton Sheen. And really, you know, what they were talking about is kind of what we're living now. So it really shouldn't be a surprise to people, should it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in the introduction to the book, I talk about the, um, the 1969 address of then Father um, Ratzinger, right? Even before right. he's a yeah. and a cardinal, this is, and and it's and it's incredible how um, and it's incredible how uh, prescient it was. This would have been less than a decade after, much less than a decade after the uh, close of the Second Vatican Council. This is um, this is fifty years before today, and, and and I'm looking at this at the address he gave. It was a radio address on the future of the Church in Germany. And it just sounds so much like today, where he's talking about how the Church is going to have to get used to not having the institutional footprint and the privileges that it has always, that it has always had, and, and how it's going to, that's going to come with some real challenges. Now, this is the address that people say that um, Father Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, um, praised the idea of a smaller and purer church, and that's simply not not the case. First of all, he didn't uh, talk about a purer church; he talked about a more spiritual church. Right. And second of all, he didn't necessarily praise this vision. He said, "This is just what's going to happen, whether we like it or not, and we need to be ready for it." Um, and so, and so, the question then is, you know, is a more spiritual church is a church where? Um, where Catholic culture has faded, and the and the the folks who are drawn to the church are no longer going to be necessarily folks who wish for whom the the faith was passed down like DNA, but is instead a chosen thing. Is the church with fewer institutions? Is the church with less worldly respect? Is, is this a pure church? It doesn't have to be. It could be worse. Right. It's up to us to make sure it is in fact a purifying moment. Because and this is something you know I, I talk about in the book. You know. 
cultural Catholicism gets a bad rap, and 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 often fairly, because once Catholicism becomes primarily or exclusively a culture, and it loses the sacramental, and the sacramental becomes just part of the cultural, that's that's a problem. But at her very best, the Church builds culture out of the liturgical, out of the sacramental. In a, in a in the, when the Church is really going, the faith is passed down like DNA. That's what we should hope to, to recreate, but that's not where we are right now. No, unfortunately, so. you're you're absolutely right. I mean, and I think you know part of you know I think you did a really good job in the book talking about how how the church, instead of you know helping mold society, has more melded into society. Yes, and so it's really lost its its authoritative stance, right? I mean, it, it really has given up what it had. Because it yeah. wanted to be like the culture, and that is the exact opposite of what should be going on. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And you see this, you see this in Benedict's address, and that's you know I mentioned Archbishop, uh, you know Venerable Fulton Sheen, uh, in this regard as well, because you know I, I say at some point I forget sometime in the first or second chapter, like, this is not a Vatican II book. This is not a book that's going to focus on either the the um, the positives or the negatives of the council. For me, that's a that's it's, it's almost a sideshow. Right. The um the the seeds of decline are there long before the council. And and and, and I'm not just making this up. You know, Fulton Sheen in his autobiography talked about how the spirit of the kind of the mainstream, the spirit of the bourgeois, was in the church before this. This is something that's been there for a while. Where going to mass be- was already becoming something that you do because that's just respectable people do. That's what the people in my, in my uh, social station do. Um, it's, it's a place to be seen. Um, my dad tells a story about how um, it would have been around the time of the childhood, probably the 1960s, so, um, that Christmas Midnight Mass um, in his very Catholic neighborhood in Pittsburgh was the social event of the season. All the, all the high school boys would, would ask girls to go and to get corsages. And it, it was, this was like the big event. And on the one hand, it's really charming. Like how wonderful that, um, that mass was, had this essential social role. On the other hand, you could see, you could imagine, and, and, and in talking to my dad more than imagine, this is definitely part of the thing was that like, it became mostly a social thing, and Jesus was just like one guest at the party. <laughs> um, and uh, and so that's um, that's that's you know where you can see that the um, you know that even as it seemed like our influence and our kind of cultural footprint was at its height, that was precisely the moment when we became attached to a a mainstream to a respectability that just a moment later was about to change. And then once you get used to being in the mainstream, you just go along with where the mainstream goes. Well, and if you don't have deep roots, right, and it's more, again, if it's a cultural thing, then, uh, you know, you really don't have, uh, you're not going for the right reason. You're going, which is good, but you're not growing in your faith and in your spirituality and being able to share that, right. And counter what the culture's saying, you just kind of follow the the current and it's kind of led us to a point where, you know, we're dealing with the abuse scandal. We've had years of poor catechesis. I mean, even with, you know, all the things that have been going on with the pandemic and the riots, 
you know, in my estimation, it really has been a lack of willingness of some leaders to stand up and call a spade a spade. I mean, some have, but not nearly as many as could have. And it's almost yeah. afraid they're almost afraid to stand up against the culture because they're going to get run over. What they don't realize is they're going to get run over anyway. Right, right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, um, you mentioned like, like the, you know, even with like the, the abuse crisis, you know, you're looking at some of, some of the worst times for that are in that kind of 50s, 60s, 70s. And that's precisely when yep. we had become so attached to being respectful that we didn't want to lose that by revealing these things that were happening. Yeah. Um, and that's not, it's not like a silver bullet. It's not like the one explanation. There are tons of reasons why all that happened. But when I, you know, when you look back at, you know, you mentioned I live in Pittsburgh and we had revelations a couple of years ago that kind of came out long after the original one in, in 2002. And one of the things that you see time and time again is the church wielding that kind of the authority, the kind of cultural authority it had to protect that cultural authority instead of actually being the kind of spiritual institution. And that, you know, of course, the Church is not just a spiritual institution, it is a temporal institution, it is a political institution even, but um, once you become attached to that respectability, that attachment, that's just as bad. It's just as much of an attachment, a disordered attachment, as attachment to wealth or any other material good. Right, and you know, before we you know, start pounding the Church, I mean, we have to look at ourselves, because you bring a good point up in the book. You talk about families, right? Really, families need to be yeah. the foundation. They need to, there needs to be a renewal. And at one point, you talk about, you know, there's kind of three places in everybody's life. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit and how you have to have sure. a balance between those three? Because if we don't have strong families, how do we expect to have a strong church? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a there's a uh, an idea in urbanism of like the, the, the three places. One is the domestic place. The other is the workplace. But then there's the third place, the kind of in between place and um, the place where you can uh, meet people casually the coffee shops, things like that. And I talk about the third place in the con- in the context of parish life, the parish as kind of what should be the quintessential third place where you can where, of course, you come together to worship. But also you just come together just to be together, um, where you would just run into people uh, because you're there for one thing and someone else is there for another thing. Something we've been blessed with at the parish that we, that we attend here in Pittsburgh, where, you know, you, you know, obviously in the past few months it hasn't quite been this much, but, right. um, you know, for a while it was, you would be there not just Sunday at 11 a.m. for an hour, hour and a half, but you'd be there at Sunday for a catechism. And then math, and then you're there on Monday for something else, and there on Wednesday for something else. You know, and that, that becomes that becomes a real focal point for, um, for all aspects of life. Um, and I think uh, you know one of the things that have decimated the idea of the third place, um, and this is something that affected the church certainly, but also affected other institutions, was suburbanization because the, the the Catholic Church in America was. Deeply urban institution, right? And once, once that, and so, you know, you have you know places in Pittsburgh where you would have you know five or six churches for different ethnicities within like twenty blocks, you know, um, and which is but because everything was so close, it was easy to just show up and have that kind of serendipitous meeting, and you know, and, and then you know the kids start playing together, and then you end up losing the whole day because you know you then you go home and you grill, you know, um, and. Uh, and so, um, but once once those neighborhoods broke apart, and the uh, and that kind of natural cohesiveness was gone, 
it was hard to bring it back together in part because I argue the Sacramento had begun to lose its lose its kind of flavor. Um, not objectively, but subjectively. Right, right. Um, and uh, and so you know the family then becomes, on the one hand, uh, more important than before because you're you kind of lost this sense of community, and the family begins to, to take on, uh, in some ways, a, um, a a burden that it's really not suited to bear to be everything that's not the workplace. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, that's the, you know, I talk about how there's a, um, we have a kind of, um, uh, a, a distinction that it's either, uh, it either takes a, a village to raise a child or it takes a family to raise a child. Back in the nineties, there were competing books. It was, uh, Oh yeah. Hillary Clinton. Hillary. How can you forget Hillary that? Clinton yeah. Takes the village. Exactly. And then, Oh, it was like, Oh, Early 2000s, I think, you know, Rick Santorum from my state um, wrote "It Takes a It Takes a Family," and you know, the, what I what I suggest is that it's it's both and and neither. It, I would say it takes a church. It takes the church to give you to give that vertical spiritual supernatural dimension that is essential to human life, and that um, so yes, it takes a family and it takes people around you. But at the end of the day what a child really needs is a relationship with Christ that is provided uh, in, an, in a distinctive and exclusive way by the Church. Yeah, and, and, and that's kind of where we are today, right? When, when Church isn't important, or Mass isn't important, the liturgy's not yeah. important, and, you know, you try to do it as yourself. Any, you know, anytime we separate ourselves from Christ and think, okay, I got this, Lord, we are, we are asking for where we are today, aren't we? Yes, yeah, definitely, definitely. And, you know, that's one of the kind of the main things that runs throughout the book is that this isn't about, um, you know, my, my vision for renewal, such as it is, is not like PowerPoint presentations with, you know, deliverables and measurables and all this corporate speak. <laughs> it's about, first of all, relying on grace. And then things emerge out of that that are unpredictable and that are often beautiful. Uh, and that's why I focus at the end of the book on friendship with the community, because I think that's where you can kind of see that uh, kind of primordial soup of, of grace and relationship and learning what it means to live uh, in a more selfless, more community-oriented way um, that then can kind of flower out into the world around us, both into our own neighborhoods, Catholic and non-Catholic, and into parish life and so on. Um, I think that... Uh, you know, I, I think that that's where you can kind of see the first fruits there in family life, where you can see the first fruits of that reliance on grace. In my situation, you know, we now have a, a situation in Pittsburgh where there are something like, you know, a dozen young Catholic families living roughly within walking distance of one another in our neighborhood. And this wasn't something we all got together and planned. Right. It was just a couple families moved here, and then people were like, well, I'm looking for a house. And I'm going to put that neighborhood higher on the list because there's people I already know there, and it just snowballs from there. Right. Um, and the, the the graces and the goods that have come out of this are are, you know, if you were told me five years ago the, the the types of things and the types of kind of relationships that are formed, I would have said, wow, that's that's fanciful. There's no way. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, and so, yeah, that that experience informs not just the community part of the book, but the the whole the whole thing because uh, it just has given me a the tiniest of windows into what grace makes possible and um, and it just makes you want more 
Well, and you know, we we were given tons of grace, right? We receive graces yeah. every time we receive the sacraments. So it's not like we don't have it. Now, if we don't use it, that that's kind of on us. And, you know, what you're talking about almost sounds like, you know, there was a forest fire and now there's new growth springing up, right, in different yep, areas. Absolutely. And that's, you know, but that's a choice, right? It just doesn't happen. Yeah. It, it ha- And I think, you know, the other piece that I, I liked in your book, you know, you talk about the invisible church, right? We're not creating yeah. something new, right? We have yeah. the examples. We have the saints who are praying for us. They, they've yeah. been there, done that kind of thing. So this isn't stuff we have to do on our own. All we have to do is accept those graces, those gifts, participate in the liturgy, you know, yeah. have a relationship with the saints. We have everything we need for that renewal that you're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, I was, I was really keen on making sure we I talked about the, the, the invisible church. There's two, two chapters on the church. One's the visible church mm-hmm. and the other is the invisible church. And that second one is so important because if you get bogged down in just thinking about the earthly institution, you just, you drive yourself nuts. <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah. I've, you know, I've been there and it's a short drive. Yeah. 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 It's just, you just drive yourself crazy. Um, but remembering that, the church militant, the, that is to say, you know, the, the, the church here on earth, is only part of the thing. And that's why we talk, you, you, you talked about deep roots before. And that's why I try to say, yes, rooted in tradition, but anchored in heaven. And, and that anchor in heaven, that's the, indivi- that's the, that's the invisible church. That's the, the angels and saints. Right, that's the church triumphant, the, yeah. The, and we have constant access to. They're, they're just as real as you and me. Uh, in fact, in a sense, more real, <laughs> yeah, because they're enjoying the beatific vision, and so, um, and so, forgetting that they exist, forgetting that we have constant, perpetual access um, to to God through them, is, uh, is 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 that 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 leads to despair. Yeah, and we see it, right? I mean, we see it yeah. today. I mean, it, how do you handle a pandemic? How do you handle riots? When you don't have that anchor, that root, those roots that you're talking about, right? I mean, then you become, you do get, in, you know, almost depressed, right? Despair kind of takes over because you have nothing to hang on to. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in the very, I think it's in the, I did a little author's note at the beginning because I wrote this thing in the wintertime. And then, like, I send it off, and then all of a sudden, oh, my goodness, the world has changed. And so I wrote a little, little note at the beginning saying, like, Dear reader, you're going to know more about this pandemic than I do right now. Right. I, saw, I remember reading that. I laughed when I read that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and I mean, this was even before the riots and everything. But, um, but, uh, but you know, one thing that I did, I said, and that has certainly proven true is that the world is getting more confusing, more unstable, and more crazy. There's no question about it. But that's exactly why the Church needs to embrace the reality of who and what she is, because the Church is stability in a time of instability. The Church is sanity in a, in a, in a time of craziness. The Church is, um, is um, constancy in a time of temporariness and confusion. And so and that's simply what she is. Even, you know, we could quibble about the way she lives that out, both in terms of the institutional church and in terms of kind of wider Catholic life. But that is, by her nature, what she is. And being that, bringing that reality to this world, is the best kind of contradiction we can bring 
to a crazy world. Yeah, and in the end, everybody's looking for that anchor, right? I mean, they may yes, not know exactly. they may not know they're looking for it, but they are looking for it. They need they need it, and I think you know that's why we're called to be that light on the hill, right? And so, yeah. oh, there it is. That's what I need. And you know, if we're exactly. not living our lives, especially as families, uh, yeah. rooted in faith, then people aren't going to see the light because we got to guide them to that main light, and we're the lights yeah. that called at our baptism. And if and if people don't find our anchor, find our roots, if they don't find us as the as the source of stability that they're craving, they're going to seize on to much uglier things. Because at the end of the day, this kind of instability and confusion and, and insanity is not the way human beings are meant to live. We are not meant to live with this kind of this kind with where everything's up in the air, where there's nothing solid to hold on to. It's it's a it is a psychologically unstable place for human beings. And so if we aren't going to be presenting the, the fullness of the truth as a place to be, people are going to latch on to compelling, slickly presented lies. Well, and in the end, right, the great fallacy is there is nothing to hold on to, when in, in actuality there's everything to hold on to, and the church exactly. is there, it's Jesus Christ, and... Yep. You know, that's, you know, you're, you know, you're my, everybody's responsibility as mothers and fathers and parents is, is to teach our children this and it not to be a cultural thing, to be part of who we are, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's our very being that, that enables us to know Jesus Christ. It's not just, Hey, Hey Jesus, how's it going? Good to see you for an hour this week. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I talk about how, you know, the, the faith is, is meant to imbue every aspect of life, and how the idea that faith is just something you do for an hour on Sundays, and then maybe kind of within the privacy of your own head, um, this is this is the legacy of secular liberalism. Like, this, this whenever whenever we act that way, we're just acting as good seculars, even, even as we may be going to Mass, you know, uh, semi-frequently. Um, but that that kind of privatization, you can be kind of religious in your home, but not in the workplace. I think I think you know we're already ca- carving out public spaces that are secular. This is bad. Right. But I think that it gets even worse. And I think this lesson has come down a lot more than we want to acknowledge. That the family even becomes a quasi public, quasi secular space where it becomes uncomfortable to even like put up religious articles in your home because oh, I don't want to force this on my kids or I don't want it to be uncomfortable when my so-and-so friends who are Catholic come over, you know, but everybody else is kind of filling their homes with the things they believe in. <laughs>